The Guardian. Hello, this is a business podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Route in the city. And no, I'm not talking about the urban riots, but mayhem in the markets. Four years to the day since the credit crunch began, world stock markets are in turmoil again with fears of a new global recession. Do the world's presidents, prime ministers and central bankers have the desire or even the ability to avert a new financial crisis? Joining me to discuss this, I've got The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. From Royal Holloway College at the University of London, Sukhdev Johal. And on the line from New York, our Wall Street reporter, Dominic Rush. Larry Elliott, let's begin with you. What's causing the panic in the markets? Well, it all went wrong when the Smurfs rang the bell to open the New York Stock Exchange 10 days ago. Up until that point, everything had been good. Since the Smurfs uh, rang the bell, the Dow Jones index has fallen just about every day, and so has the FTSE. But uh, Smurfs apart, I think there are three things. Uh, the underlying reason I think things have gone wrong is that people are now very worried about the state of the global economy and have been getting worried about it for several months. There's been signs of a slowdown pretty much everywhere in the Eurozone, in the US and in China. So that's the sort of underlying factor. On top of that, there were two other things that happened uh, which brought things to a head. One was the creeping problems of the Eurozone, which were spreading from the periphery to the main main countries of uh, Spain and Italy, and their bond yields were going up. People were very nervous about whether there had to be bailouts there. And of course, the final thing was the sort of big argument in the US over the state of the US debt ceiling, whether it should be raised, and the subsequent quite well-flagged um, announcement by S&P that they were going to downgrade America's debt. So you, all the, those three things came together, formed one nasty cocktail of, of problems, and that's against that background, the markets have been tumbling pretty much everywhere for the last two weeks. Sikdev, anything to add? Um, I think it's a remarkable shift from, from economics, uh, from politics to economics. What you've got is kind of... Um, the banks who are responsible for offloading all the debt onto governments and now the problem is the governments. The solution is a political solution, not an economic solution. I can't really see anything that can happen between now and, say, the end of summer where there will be a political solution. So hold on kind of, to the front pages because um, the Smurfs have started something that I don't think they can stop unless there is political intervention. Dominic on Wall Street, was the S&P downgrade that much of a big deal, do you think? The S&P downgrade, I don't know. It's, it's strange because it's not like it was a big surprise. It's kind of what it reminded me of was if you've been bad at school and you know, your parents know you're going to get a terrible report and everybody knows this, but then you get the report and they shout at you anyway. So it wasn't kind of a big surprise, but it was... <coughs> It was a watershed moment, you know, I mean, there's, there's no getting away from it. Going Downgrading the U.S. debt is like an incredible historic moment. But we knew we were in trouble already. The markets knew this. And then the re- but the reaction has been, to me, the reaction has been a surprise. It's like um, they was, they was, the markets have been going down for a while, but um, and there's obviously a lot of concern about what's going on in Europe and a lot more concern over here about what's going on with the U.S. economy. But... Um, the sell-off has been so extraordinary. I think we're down um, 10 of the last 11 trading days now. It's just um, they're, they're in complete panic mode. And I think um, what you were saying earlier about there's a shift here. There's a, 
as we've got to a moment where people don't seem to think government can sort this out. And I think that's um, when we always used to look to Greenspan before Bernanke to step in and say something reassuring to the markets and everybody listened and then we carried on. And those days seem to have gone. Nobody seems to have any faith in government's ability to sort this out. I think the, I think the fundamental problem is that markets in about 2009, 2010, thought it was crisis over. They thought the problem had been solved. Recovery seemed to be underway. Governments had stepped in and acted. And what they've what has dawned on them is that the crisis really has just been shifted from the private sector to the public sector, that the debt burden that was building up in the private sector in the first half of the 2000s hasn't gone away. There's still so much debt swirling around the system. All that's happened is effectively that debt has been nationalised and has been lumped onto the balance sheets of governments. And uh, in some ways, it's even more frightening than it was in 2007-8, because then we were just talking about the solvency of financial institutions. And now the concern is whether governments, whether sovereign states are themselves going to be solvent, whether the, whether there's a mechanism for dealing with the solvency or insolvency of, of sovereign states. And that is a very, very serious problem. And what it really means is that people have now reassessed their judgment that this was going to be over within two or three years and now talking about a very very long adjustment period of a decade or more and that and that is essentially where we are and why markets are really uh, really struggling i think let, before we go any further let's set up our own credit rating agency on the podcast and we'll call it elliot johal and rush which one of you <laughs> would downgrade would downgrade would downgrade america larry you start i would on what, on what grounds um it's got very very high levels of debt it's at the moment it's got very big future commitments and it's got a very very slow growing economy i i i i I can understand why people had a real pop at the uh, ratings agencies over their ratings of the banks uh, and the financial sector earlier i think that was absolutely justified i can't see why having said that they weren't up to the job of of getting it right on the banks that they're now being attacked for actually getting it right i think on 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 sovereign on sovereign governments they are actually pointing out that some of these governments are going to have real problems paying the bills and that goes for that goes for the us as much as it goes for italy and spain in some ways the sort of debt dynamics of the us are even worse than those of italy at least italy has been running a primary budget surplus the us has not um, so uh, th- there are i think there are justifications for downgrading the us yes sukdev um i wouldn't want to set up a, a, a credit rating agency. I don't fancy having the windows put through. Um, but um, I mean, point one is kind of the legitimacy of a of a ratings agency. Um, whether America should be downgraded, I just don't know. But what I do know is that um, they're convenient whipping whipping boys currently. Um, so the politicians can blame the ratings agency for um, why the hell have you done this? Why have you done this to us? Really, you know, this is just not on. The second point is that is it international debt that we're looking at or is it national debt? The identity of those who have lent to the national economies matters. If it was national debt, then America could find a solution that was national. When it's international, it's finance that has usurped democratic politics. We'll come back to that in a, in a second, but I'm not going to allow you off the hook on whether you downgrade America or not. Come on, what's your answer there? Um, the answer is maybe. Um, I, I really... Um, what is an acceptable level of debt is a relative kind of issue, is it not? Why today? Why not kind of, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago or even 30 years ago? 
an economy that is spending more than it is earning, there will be unhappiness somewhere along the way. But why now? Okay. So, Dominic, we've got an out-and-out downgrade from Larry. We've got what in the ratings agency speak they call an outlook negative from Sukdev. What's your your pitch? Well... It, it, it has been downgraded, and, and I think rightly so. I mean, I'm no fan of the ratings agencies for what they did to the economy um, in, in, in the credit crisis, but I think on this one they got, they got it right. It's, but at the same time, and you know, John Chambers uh, S&P was making this point yesterday that it was, it's like going from indigo to navy blue. So, I mean, they're still, they're still very highly rated. You know, America's not going bust anytime soon. It's going to continue to be the preeminent economic force in in the world it's just not going to be i think we are at a historic moment we you know the fact that china can feels it can have a say about how the the u.s government runs its runs itself and um and the fact that s and what s and p has to say is so important has such an enormous effect on the stock markets shows that america is no longer um, as powerful as it was, and we're moving into a world where there are, um, other voices are going to matter, and we're going to, it's going to be like the great game or something. You're going, to, you're going to have competing superpowers, all of whom are going to have outsized influences, and China's obviously going to be one of those, and I think that um, America's going to have to get used to the idea that it's going to be one of many players instead of you know, the deciding factor. Okay, well, let's pick up on that point, because as Sukhdev pointed out, when the US Treasury wants to borrow money, it's got two major sources, its own citizens who can make their thoughts known at the ballot box, or increasingly over recent years, it can borrow from China and Japan. When the Chinese were told on Friday that their holdings of US bonds just got more risky, they were less than impressed. Tanya Brannigan's in Beijing for The Guardian. We've seen a very strong reaction from the Chinese media to the downgrade. Uh, We've certainly seen them really scolding uh, the US and to some extent Europe as well for being irresponsible, for not taking care of finances. Uh, There's been the suggestion that uh, the nature of politics in the US has caused it a lot of its problems. And and the message that we've seen repeatedly is, well, what's this going to do to us? And China's saying in very strong terms now, we have a right uh, to tell you what to do effectively because it's now our assets that are being affected. China is in a very difficult position. And I think some people in both the West and in China have sort of misunderstood this. They look at a huge pile of foreign reserves, about $3.2 trillion worth, and they say, well, gosh, everything is going splendidly for China. But of course, it leaves them with two problems, really. The first one is that most of those assets uh, are in dollar form. Now, that means that they don't want uh, U.S. debt to be devalued in any way. They're they're very, very conscious of the the value of their assets and the need to protect those. China's thinking, well, if the U.S. does sort of rein in its spending, that's a problem for us potentially because of what's going to happen to exports. And so there's a real anxiety here as well. It's not that they're looking at the U.S. uh, with any kind of complacency. They're much more nervous, I think, this time than they were in 2008 when we saw demand falling then. Tanya Brannigan there from Beijing. Dominic and Wall Street, let's just jump straight to you. How did the US Treasury respond to its scolding? They haven't really reacted to the Chinese scolding in the same way they reacted to the S&P scolding, which, is, which said, says a lot, I think. <laughs> Obviously, and maybe they're doing that more behind closed doors, I should think. But just the idea that the Chinese can feel that they can turn around and say this to America is, I think, a his, as... Perhaps 
in the long term is going to be seen as more historic than the S&P downgrade. Um, I was talking to somebody in Shanghai uh, earlier this week, and he, he was saying that um, he's been talking to Chinese officials who think that they have more a better understanding of how the U.S. economy should be run than the Americans do. And, you know, the, uh, China is run by these... Um, engineers and you know America's run by lawyers, and they feel that um, the lawyers are running it into the ground, and that this Tea Party spat was you know completely unacceptable because of the knock-on effects it's had on markets around the world, and things need to be sorted out. And they came instead of doing it behind closed doors when we only find out from WikiLeaks, they're they're um, they're saying it out loud. It's kind of an extraordinary moment. Sukhdev, Washington used to tell the rest of the world how to run their economies, and now it's being told by Beijing how to run it. So that's, that's, that is a, a big, a big change, isn't it? It is a shift. The significance of it will only probably be felt in about twenty or thirty years. But um, there is a positive effect on this as well with the downgrade of the debt, which is America got its goodies even cheaper in terms of manufacturers. In terms of kind of political kind of shift. Let's see in kind of in context. I mean, if you look at kind of the computer and technology sector, largely it's designed with software, etc., in America with an offshore manufacturing plant in China. Much of the kind of the problems are related to the way that the American economy is now organized and its inability to either tax in a way that is more equitable or to actually rein back some of its kind of expenditure. In terms of China telling America how to run its economy, that is a remarkable shift, just as surely as it is for the Indian economy uh, and the, uh, uh, the Indian foreign minister talking about whether it's safe to come for the 2012 Olympics. There is some kind of shifts that are going on which are emblematic. Um, I'm not sure what the outcome economically will be. Um, probably too early to tell. Larry, it's all very well for Beijing to kvetch about the US downgrade, but if it wants to hold assets, financial assets, then it's left holding dollar-dominated assets, isn't it? I think Beijing's got an awful lot of nerve. <laughs> giving le- not, not giving lectures to the Americans about economic policy, but about this particular bit of economic policy. Let's face it, what the Chinese have been doing is artificially keeping down the level of their currency, which has meant that the American market has been flooded with cheap Chinese goods. And they've lent the Americans, because the American manufacturing has been effectively hollowed out as a result, they've lent the Americans the money to buy the goods that China's making. As a result, the Americans have built up huge debts. Uh, And uh, surprise, surprise, people have now woken up to the fact that America's running a very, very big budget deficit and and its national debt is going through the roof. Therefore, it's being downgraded. But it's being downgraded as a direct result of the global economic system that the Chinese have actually manipulated for their own ends. So for the Chinese now to bitch on about the Americans being downgraded is is slightly rich, I think, in the circumstance. I mean, I I do think this is a significant moment. Um, It's a significant moment for Obama, I think. The the psychological impact of of this on the Obama presidency, I think, will be profound. The idea of not just a downgrade, but being lectured by the Chinese, I think that's that's going to play very badly for Obama. And I do think this probably, in in future years, we may look back on this period as a time when we really start to see the decline of the West and the rise of the emerging nations, because it's not just a downgrade, it's the fact that the big emerging nations are rapidly closing the gap in terms of GDP on 
on the you know if you if you've got the US growing at one two percent a year and China growing at eight nine ten percent a year, compound that over ten or fifteen years and you quickly make up a lot of ground. And I think that what we're really seeing here over the last five five years and probably over the next five years is the gap closing really rapidly between India, China, Brazil, and the and the big Western nations, which will continue to grow very slowly. Dominic, is it a bar who's carrying a can for this downgrade? I, it's, I'm kind of mixed on this one, I just because I think when you look at the ratings, that his personal rating is still relatively high. Um, but you know, anybody I've spoken to, you know, all the political scientists and everything, they all say that it's the economy stupid, and that um, that's what's always the deciding factor in uh, in an election. And at the moment, it looks like this economy is not going to win anyone an election doesn't look like Obama's and so yeah I mean he's the man in charge he's going to carry the can I mean obviously he's tried to make this into a tea party um, into a tea party downgrade and in a way I think attacking S&P was you know inevitable and everybody hates S&P but he should have gone for the maybe gone for the tea party a bit harder but um, he's the man in charge so I guess he's going to get the blame for it Mm. Well, the troubles in America are bad enough, but at least no one's talking about a breakup of the union. Unlike Europe, where a recent buy-up of Italian and Spanish debt has calmed markets for now, but leaves central questions of EU financial stability unresolved. After bailouts of Ireland, Greece and Portugal, suddenly Italy's become the biggest worry. John Hoop is the Guardian's Rome correspondent. Italy, for a long time, has had a latent economic problem with its debt. Uh, Italy has the highest debt ratio in the Eurozone after Greece. And in absolute terms, it's by far the biggest uh, debt mountain in the single currency union. Um, That means that it it is much more sensitive uh, to any rise in the yield on its bonds, in other words, its borrowing costs, uh, than uh, almost any other country uh, in the Eurozone. Uh, The the result of that is that the markets for some time have had a wary eye on Italy and became increasingly concerned, not just about the level of its debt, but also about its ability ultimately to repay that debt, because Italy now for virtually 10 years has seen almost nil growth. What though seems to have triggered the initial round of concern about Italy and the first run on its bonds was when signs emerged of tension between the Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi and his finance minister Giulio Tremonti. I think that this is serious too for Silvio Berlusconi. Despite all the financial scandals that have brought in members of his government, he himself has been safe because there's been no sign within his own party that people want to get rid of him. And that's normally the way that a prime minister falls. That has not happened with Berlusconi because his own party has been relatively content with his performance despite everything. Recently, however, as it has become more and more clear that Mr. Berlusconi does not understand the gravity of the situation, he is 
at the moment are still on holiday in Sardinia, for example, there has been growing discontent among his own people. And that is very serious for him. John Hooper there from Rome. Larry, there's trouble in America and there's trouble in Europe. Which area worries you most? Uh, I think Europe worries me most because in the end it's possible for the Americans to sort out their problems. I think it will take a long time, but the problems of the Eurozone to me look intractable. I just don't see how the Euro can survive, actually. I think it's possible that the Euro will break up. The the only alternative to me seems to be a fully-fledged political union with essentially a European Treasury and a European Chance of the Exchequer able to move resources uh, around the the Union. That that looks very, very hard to achieve at the moment. But the problem that John was talking about there is the one that's dogged the Eurozone right from the start, that some countries grow very slowly uh, under monetary union, Italy being one of them, and other countries grow much more rapidly. And there, there has been no real convergence, and there, never, there wasn't real convergence to start with, and nor is there any real crisis mechanism for dealing with problems when they arise. So it, it, it strikes me that this is, a very, this is a real existential crisis for the Eurozone, I think one that's been coming right from the start. And um, the longer it goes on, uh, the less confident I am that the Eurozone will be able to survive this intact. Agree? Disagree? Uh, Agree with Larry. Um, There is no redistributive mechanism other than trade uh, and the imbalances are largely caused through Germany's success through trade. So you mean if Greece is in really bad trouble, it can't devalue its currency, it can't default on its loans, it's just stuck with... And gets lectured by... Stuck with austerity, isn't it? It gets lectured by finance of how it needs to adjust rather than recognising that the euro has been devalued and allowed German exports to become cheaper um just a quick question to both of you then um uh, we can we can agree that there are structural problems within the eurozone but the point about structural problems is you can resolve them do you not think in this case what's been particularly marked is actually governments and central bankers have been unable to face up and get a grip on the problems isn't that what's really made this so serious rather than the long-running kind of contradictions within a single currency zone of you know 17 different countries Sikhdev, you go first. Yes and no to that one. In terms of politics, what can politics fix when the actual project was ill-conceived at the beginning? Again, there is no redistributive mechanism where wealth is spread thinly across the Eurozone. Um, America can devalue its economy. Um, What is Greece going to do? It's going to be told by the IMF to continue these kind of failed 30-year experiments of privatisation and more austerity. It didn't work before. It won't work again. But it's finance now that is calling the shouts. I think the politicians know what needs to be done, but they can't do it because this little thing called democracy gets in the way. That um, it, They know that actually what is needed is to construct a political union to go alongside monetary union and that monetary unions are on them by themselves are inherently unstable. But where is the public support in Greece or Portugal or Italy or Spain or in, and, and particularly in Germany for a federal Europe where, where Germany would uh, be the, the hub of the, uh, the machine and, and redistribute all 
all the, all the lolly to the rest of the unit. It just it just isn't there, and the, the politicians know that. So essentially, what they've been doing is trying to play for time, play for time, play for time, all the way down the road. And as a result, the crisis has got deeper and deeper and digger and deeper. And fixing it has become more expensive every time a, a new country has been sucked in. That's why I think we're rapidly approaching the end of the road. You can kick the can down the road for so long, but eventually you hit the wall, and that's what that's where we that's where we're at. And so, if they're going to salvage something from this they need to get a need to get a move on dominic what is that larry what does what what do you think the end of the road is for the for the european for the eurozone i think it's yeah i think there are the most likely thing i think is a hardcore eurozone set up around germany of a small number of countries with a perhaps a sort of old-fashioned outer zone of countries in like in the old two-tier I think you know that's the most likely. The second most likely is a full political union, and the least likely of the three is a full breakup. Because I think quite a lot of political capital has been invested in it, and I think that 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 to me looks. I think they they will salvage something from it, but I'm not sure they can salvage a fully fledged monetary union with 17 countries. It just doesn't work, and I think that's that is the reality that you can bail out individual countries and you can play for time but eventually you work you come up with the real problem which is that it's just structurally not working what kind of odds do you give them some kind of breakup of the eurozone about 40 percent dominic how worried is wall street by what's going on in europe well they're 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 worried i mean but the primary focus i think here is what's going on in the u.s there was you know america is interested in america Generally, it's America first. So I think it's. I mean, obviously, what's going on in Europe is uh, is certainly not a positive. And you know, it's not like American money is flooding into the European markets because it feels it's a safer bet. It's clearly not. So I mean, the money is staying in America. Um, it's being pulled out and put into gold and into cash and stuff, but it's not being put into Europe. Obviously, the European issues are a, a, a concern, but I don't think they're the primary things that are driving the markets down here. Larry, how long can Britain retain its status as a kind of safe haven from the woes of the Eurozone in America? Uh, you're assuming there that it ever was. I don't believe Britain. Well, is... this is what our Chancellor. Well, that's might be what our Chancellor says, yeah. but it's still errant <laughs> nonsense. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the reason, the the the, 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 the supporting evidence that uh, our Chancellor gives for it, bless him, is that um, our bond yields are going down. But uh, if you look at the reason that bond yields are going down, is because people think our economy is not growing very fast, and it's essentially just a stagnant stagnant uh, economy uh, you know if 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 uh, having a big budget deficit was the reason that you have high bond yields then you know why is japan which has got a debt to gdp ratio of 225% got long term bond yields of 1% the reason is that japanese bonds are low because the japanese economy hasn't grown for the last 15 years and that's the same reason that the bond yields are low here people have reassessed what they think of the growth prospects of the uk economy and they don't like what they see particularly. So I think that over the next few months, as the UK economy continues to struggle, we may come under rather more scrutiny from the ratings agencies. Who, because there are two, there are two dimensions to getting um, your public finances in order. One is that you have to show a degree of fiscal rectitude. The other is you have to have an economy that's growing. And although George has been very good on the fiscal rectitude, he hasn't been so good on the, uh, the growing bit. And that, I think, is going to be an issue. Um, question to all three of you. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in this discussion about what governments can do. Uh, I'll just 
go around all of you actually we've already had fiscal stimulus of some kind in america britain europe we've had quantitative easing we've had austerity and we're now more or less back to where we started so what can we do now larry to you first uh, well, if I was a religious person, I'd say pray, uh, because you're right, we've used up most of the ammunition in the gun. I mean, I think that essentially we should be thinking about fiscal policy, that the countries which have got low borrowing costs who can borrow cheaply should be thinking about fiscal policy it doesn't seem to me to be any reason apart from political ideology why the germans should be trying to reduce their budget deficit at the current time or in fact that the americans should be although they've got quite high debt they've actually got very very low bond yields they could borrow in the markets at very cheap rates and i think that monetary policies to me seems to be quite exhausted short-term rates are at zero We've had two bouts of QE in the in the US. I think that there may well be a third at some point, but no one really knows what the impact of it is. It, it seems to do more for asset prices and push up the assets for rich people than, than it does for poor people who pay more for their food and their fuel. So I think that the I think the fiscal policy is probably uh, the best weapon to use at this juncture. But the problem is that the politics are getting in the way of it, and you know, as opposed to two or three years ago almost everywhere there is a sort of move towards austerity and fiscal tightening when actually that is a pretty dumb thing to do in the current juncture in my view um so i think we we are we are limited in what we can do and that's one of the reasons i think this is probably going to be a a, a long period a long workout because it, we're, we're you know the choice is between a really really bad outcome and a bad outcome and we you know i hope it can just be a bad outcome rather than a really really bad outcome i think we should take the take the opportunity um to reassess kind of you know the 30-year political project which hasn't worked um re kind of you know uh, reconceptualize kind of privatization where uh, the sums that were actually gathered through selling off the assets versus the the income that would have come to the state had they still been in kind of public ownership far exceeds the kind of the the receipts that we got um we've also got to think about kind of you know a solution that requires integrated kind of solutions and also where finance doesn't dictate economic policy international money flows are deciding who gets the punishment today and who will get the punishment tomorrow um, really, we've got to think about kind of where is all this money flow coming from? It's not simply from surpluses. It's coming from long-term savings provisions for pensions. Um, those are kind of the solutions that require not just national, but kind of supranational kind of solutions. Um, I don't think the politics exists at the moment to actually come up and say, for example, join the dots along the way and say we will have an integrated solution where the burden of adjustment just doesn't fall on the weakest but also falls on the strong. Dominic, Larry's gone for more fiscal stimulus and Sukhdev's gone for shooting the running dogs of neoliberalism. What are you going to go for? I think we should shoot the Smurfs. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I think that's the only, only solution here. I don't, think, I, I don't think there's going to be a political solution to this in, in the US. I think and we've got another row over the debt ceiling coming up in, in November um, when we were, going into an, we were going into an election, which is going to be unbelievably vicious and there's just no way the two sides are going to agree on anything so i mean i think 
that's what would be needed. I think we need some kind of consensus here and, and an agreement, like Larry is saying, to to look at taxes as well as cuts and to come up with some kind of um, policy here that's going to address all, all these major issues that the U.S. needs to address. But I can't see that that's going to get done um, this side of an election. I mean, I doubt it's going to get done the other side as well. I think, the, um, like Larry was saying, you know, you know interest rates are zero now what else are they what have what are, they've done their stimulus packages what are the tricks have they got to play they, they they're they're out of um they're out of tricks well that's nearly all for this week and we're taking a summer break but before we go let's have some summer reading that we can read world podcasts off air larry what can you recommend well i never read any economic books over the summer at all i i like to read on my holidays a nice big fat Victorian novel. So this year I am going to read Felix Holt by George, George Eliot. Have you read that, it before? No, that is my summer reading. And, and, and I, if, if, I, if I polish that one off, I might read something I've read before. I might read Bleak House by Dickens. I love Dickens and I try and read one Dickens book a year. And Bleak House, I think, is good because it sort of reminds me of the... Um, global crisis because the main bit of it is the court case of Jandis for Jandis which goes on for year after year after year after year and nothing really happens in it and it sort of reminds me of the state of the crisis it goes on for year after year after year and nothing really changes <laughs> Bitter Fruit by Sadat Hassan Manto which is about partition stories short stories about partition of India and Pakistan. Um, Bitterfruit also has kind of letters to Uncle Sam as well. Seven letters and he never gets a reply back from Uncle Sam. Um, it's um, The stories are short stories, a master storyteller of an author that was three times prosecuted for obscenity um, under the British Empire and three times by the Pakistani government. Um, only belatedly is he now being recognised as a master to- storyteller. The second book would be uh, Moneyballs, which I've been threatening to read for the last, I think, two years. The Michael um, Lewis one. Yeah, the Michael Lewis book, um, which is really kind of, you know, creating a narrative from numbers. A master storyteller again, and it's something that I've been planning to read for a long time. Dominic. Oh, I was so I was going to go I was going to go for other extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds which is Charles Mackey's which is fun well there are three chapters in it that are fun but I think Larry's right it's probably time to take a break from that so I think I'd go for a cool million um, Samuel West which is hilarious it's about this I think the subtitle is the dismantling of Lemuel Pitkin it's about this kind of um unbelievably optimistic American who uh, takes everything that life throws at him and throws an awful lot at him as he kind of literally falls to pieces. Uh, It's it's hilarious. It's a very funny book and it's about um, American optimism, really, how they think they can get through anything. Um, He doesn't. I hate to be a spoiler, but (laughs) it's, it's definitely worth the read. Silkdev, do you have a book out? Phil Maynard has said to me on the Yes, um, we've got a book uh, soon to be released in September uh, after the Great Complacence. It's uh, it's on the banking crisis and the opportunity for reform and kind of a reframing kind of banking and finance. It's out on OUP in September. 
I didn't know about that. Larry, do you got any books you want to plug? Dominic? <laughs> no, not at the moment. No, I'm looking for a publisher, if anybody did. <laughs> I just want the advance. Yeah. yeah, the trouble is you spend that advance, Dominic. You, know, you get the advance, you spend it, and then you have to write a bloody book. <laughs> well, you can leave your suggestions for summer reading on our blog and follow the rest of our economics reporting at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. My thanks to Larry Elliott, Dominic Rush and Sukhnev Johal. The producer was Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.